Today's sermon text comes from Exodus 20, verses 1 through 6. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the Father, iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Will you have this man to be your lawful wedded husband? Will you love him and forsaking all others be faithful only to him as long as you both shall live? So help you God. Some of the most solemn covenants we witness are marriage covenants, aren't they? A man and a woman committing themselves to one another. And part of the vows in the marriage covenant contain this promise of utter exclusiveness. When a man and woman enter into a marriage covenant, they promise to be loyal to the other person at all costs. They promise never to pursue other men or women, but to remain faithful to their spouse alone. We've been considering the book of Exodus for quite a while now. We've seen God deliver his people from slavery in Egypt, and now he has brought them, as we saw last week, to Mount Sinai. And as their ruler, he gives his saved people now his law. We come this morning to the first two of the Ten Commandments. These commandments are part of the covenant terms between God and his people. And much like those marriage vows we just read, we see that God's people in covenant with him must commit themselves to him exclusively. As they follow Yahweh, they must forsake all other gods. But before we dig into this passage this morning, let's, let's consider briefly how we should think about the Ten Commandments. Because it can be easy to just come and look at this as kind of a, a laundry list of things we do and don't do, but is there something more here? How should these commandments apply to us? After all, uh, this law God gives Moses and his people at Sinai is no longer in effect for us in the same way it was for Israel 3,500 years ago. That's clear from the book of Hebrews in the New Testament where the author says in chapter 8 that God has made a new covenant with his people and has made the first one, this one, obsolete. That is a, a, a product of the past. He's done this through Christ. Jesus came and perfectly kept the law of God for us when we could not. And so we come to this law, these commandments this morning, justified in God's eyes through Christ. We come accepted by God as if we had already kept all these commandments perfectly all our lives. 
We come under a new covenant. That's not the only way we should read these words in Exodus 20. Because if we thought that way, we'd just jettison these commandments altogether. We must recognize also that while the covenants have changed, God hasn't. As one scholar points out, the character of Yahweh we see in these verses is the same character of the God we worship today. He does not change. So as we view these commands, we learn more about who God was and is and will forever be. We learn about his attributes, his love, his holiness. So we would do well to meditate on these verses in order to know our God better and more fully. God's law reflects God's character. But finally, another good way that we shouldn't miss about how to think about these commandments is that we are now free and able to follow them and the principles they lay out for us. So that the punishment for not keeping them has fallen on Christ, and now in Christ we are free to grow in obedience, to become more like him. Obedience is now a joy for us. Like we saw last week, God has saved us for holiness. We see a hint of this sort of approach to the Ten Commandments in verse 2, I think. Yahweh has sort of the preamble to his commandment, says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He doesn't say, I am the Lord your God who will deliver you from slavery if you keep these commandments. They aren't receiving his law to be saved, but as those already saved. And so we can read of King David in the Psalms, delighting in God's law, feasting on his law, nourishing his soul on God's law, and we can too. This law does not condemn us since Christ was condemned for us. This law instead guides us in Christ in how to live pleasing to God. It shows us the character of God and so how we can better reflect the character, the image of God in our lives. I like how Alec Matir puts it. He says, this is the way Christians are to think of the Ten Commandments. Not as cramping restrictions on a fullness of life that we might otherwise have enjoyed. But as the very gateway to the fullness we seek. So before we leap into the Ten Commandments, these are three important ways to think about, view these, this Mosaic covenant, this law of God. First, Jesus has kept these commandments for us. Praise him. And he has instituted a new covenant in his blood by which we are saved. This covenant is vanishing away. Second, these commandments reflect for us the true nature of God and give us, therefore, greater ways to know him and to praise him. And third... We are set free in Christ to actually follow these commands and principles, not to merit God's salvation, but as those who have already been saved by the merit of Christ. So with those things in mind, let's dig in. So God speaks. Don't forget that. God speaks. He's a God of his word there in verse 1. And you see who his audience is? Unlike any other time in Exodus, it's not just his messenger, Moses. It's everyone. 
We saw in chapter 19, they're all gathered below Mount Sinai to hear his voice. So this morning, let's consider these first two commandments and see two things. First, let's see what we learn about God. And second, what we learn about ourselves. So first, what we learn about God. And I think the most basic way we could sum up what we learn about God in this passage is that he is the only God, and so we should worship him. He is the only God, and so we should worship him. Look in verse 3. Yahweh delivers his first commandment. He says, you shall have no other gods before me. This has been a theme throughout this entire book. So throughout Exodus, throughout the signs of judgment on Egypt, the escape from slavery, the Red Sea, the the miraculous provision in the wilderness, God has been showing Egypt, Israel, and all the world, he said back, I think in Exodus 9, all the world that he alone is Yahweh. And that Yahweh alone is God. He's been showing that in in a world where there were many deities to worship, he alone is truly sovereign, truly God. Church, our faith is an exclusive faith. Someone once said wisely, it's inclusive in that anyone can believe but it's definitely exclusive in that you can only believe in one God one way, through Jesus. So church, we do not worship the same God as our Muslim friends. We do not worship the same God as our Hindu friends. We worship the one true God who has revealed himself as the one true God in his word, the Bible. So we sang before one of my favorite hymns to sing with the church, There is a Higher Throne. Makes me think of how we're joining in with the congregation in heaven even now, worshiping our Savior. And for our purposes, we could adapt that even more to say, there is a higher throne and there is only one throne. We worship the one on that one higher throne. He has all all control, all sovereignty, all authority. He does not share his power with anyone or anything else. And so his people who have been delivered by his gracious hand, must not worship anything else. Dear church family, in order to accurately understand God, we must recognize that he loves his people. He has shown us such great mercy. But ultimately and finally, God is for God. God is out for his own praise. That is his chief goal. God is perfectly beautiful, perfectly holy, perfectly good. And as such, for him to love anything more than himself would be evil. And for him to allow his people whom he loves to worship anything else would be evil. And so he binds himself to his people in love as their only God. Do you see how this isn't merely a restrictive command, church, but a loving one? God alone must be our God. All other gods we would worship would fail us, will fail us, will harm us, will eventually destroy us. But God loves us, and so he commands us to find our ultimate goal of worship and fulfillment in him. 
teens and young people, I thought about you as I thought about this commandment. Because you're at a stage where you're considering your, your parents' faith and, and what you will decide to believe. And, and as you do that, I, I'd encourage you to consider what this might mean for you. That God claims exclusive worship and allegiance. Because you may still have a desire to be a Christian, and that's wonderful, to keep on following God like you've been raised, to make your faith your own. But just maybe, perhaps, as you think that way, you, you're thinking also, maybe I can kind of keep my, my options open. Once I get out of the house, maybe I can at least try out something else, keep an open mind to other ways of life, other religions, other lifestyles that might contradict the truth if revealed in God's word. And if that's something you've considered, that's fine. Be honest about that. But just let me say, you, you probably don't want to call yourself a Christian then. A Christian is one who gives himself entirely to God. This true God of the Bible seen here in Exodus chapter 20 does not tolerate half-hearted worship from you. He demands all of you. That's his demand for all his followers. So as you mature, as you grow, as you continue on in your course of life, you'll have doubts and fears about your faith. And I hope you can feel like you can talk about that in the church. There's no better place to talk about the doubts and fears that everybody has, including your parents, about what they believe than here in the church. You'll need to work through how you respond to God's truth and, and the pleasures that the world offers and how those things might not mix very well. But as you work through those things, Remember that being a Christian means giving yourself entirely to God, even in the doubt, even in the despair, even in the fear. Not withholding any part of you for someone or something else. Those aren't my terms. Those aren't Loudon Valley's terms. Those are God's terms. Take them or leave them. All right, look there at the second commandment. This is very much connected to the first Yahweh says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So one scholar connects those first two commandments like this. He says, the first commandment forbids the worship of any but the one true God. And the second commandment forbids the worship of that one true God in the wrong way. See, our God is not like us. Our God is spirit. He is a spiritual being, unable to be seen with our eyes like we see one another today. See, he, he appears here on Mount Sinai not as a, as a physical being, but in a cloud obscured by smoke. His people don't really see him, but they hear him. So in the ancient Near East, and in many parts of the world today, even in this country we live in today, idols carved out of wood or stone or other material are used to kind of represent the presence of a god. And they're bowed down to and worshipped. But Yahweh is not like the false gods of the nations. He says here, he must not be represented in created things. We'll think about this more in a few chapters when we see Israel totally disobey this 
covenant and this law and create a golden calf. Yahweh must not be represented in created things because he is the creator. So to make an image to kind of symbolize him is to demote him, to bring him lower. And as the one true God, he will not, he must not, and he cannot tolerate that sin. Why? Well, we see in verse 5. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. The word jealous obviously has negative meanings in our day. But if you really think about it, jealousness is essential to any true love, isn't it? Think back to the illustration of the wedding vows. So a husband says to his wife that he has committed himself to her, forsaking all others. And as a loyal wife, she must hold him to that. Be jealous of his commitment, the the love he's professed to her. Because he's saying, I love you. I shall have no other women before you. If she takes that seriously and she sees him betraying that promise, she won't just shrug it off as as no big deal. She'll be jealous for his love. She'll hold him to his promise. Christian, do you see how God's love for you is displayed in the jealousness of his love for you? He knows. He knows you will only find your true joy in worshiping him as you were made to do. And so he demands your whole heart. He's jealous for you. He'll let no other loves intrude. It's not that he's needy. No, it's, it's that he knows we're needy. And he knows we need him, Right? He knows how to save us, and so he's bound himself to us to love us and lead us. Do you remember Israel? They were in captivity, service to Pharaoh, who called himself a god. And now they're in greater service to the true God that they were made to worship. And so it makes sense that as part of their deliverance, they must keep their worship to him alone. God is jealous. And honestly, Christian, would you want it any other way? If God was not jealous for your love, would you be okay with that? If he was like, yeah, I'm going to covenant myself to you, but let's keep this relationship sort of open, right? Wouldn't you be, begin to kind of doubt his goodness, his affection, his faithfulness? Perhaps this afternoon it would do your soul well to take time to meditate on what it means that God's love for you is a jealous love. All right, so we learn here about God, that he alone is God, and so we must worship him, and that since he alone is God, he will tolerate no rivals. So in light of that, what do we learn about ourselves? First, we realize we aren't God, right? So Adam and Eve's first sin in the garden was to want to be like God, but here we're reminded yet again that there is only one God, and we are not him. We are made instead to worship him. And so we learn here that we are all made to be worshipers. It's in our DNA. In our humanness, each one of us is a worshiper. And in our sinfulness, each one of us worships the wrong thing. We elevate other things above God, don't we? That is the basic 
foundation of our sin. The pastor, Tony Merida, says it this way. He says, everyone is a worshiper of someone or something. So idolatry is then putting someone or something else in the place of God. So we don't have many wooden idols. I've been to many of your homes and I don't see them on your mantle. But we do have idols. What's ironic is that many times our idols are other people made in the image of God, aren't they? And we're tempted to, to worship the image bearer instead of the image they bear. In our sin, we take created things and we worship them instead of the creator. Those are idols. So, so for example, if, if like me, you have a small child and she draws a picture of a playground with a slide you're not going to take up that piece of construction paper and you're not going to speak to the slide on that paper and say, wow, slide, like you are so well built. You're so slideable. I'm in awe of you. And you won't say to, that, to the playground on that construction paper, wow, playground, you're even better than the slide. I, I praise you above all. No. No, you won't ultimately praise the creation your daughter has made. You're going to praise your daughter. You're going to praise the creator of the picture. So it is with God. He is worthy of all praise in the universe. Everything praiseworthy in our world, like that picture your daughter drew, is only praiseworthy because it has been sourced in the only praiseworthy one. In our sin, though, in our idolatry, and our self-worship, we twist that creation. And we pervert it by worshiping it instead of the creator. So dear church family, consider. Where are you worshiping the creature rather than the creator? What do you honor and prize over God? Your family? your spouse's approval, your children's affection, your money, your comfort, your sexual fulfillment. Maybe that feeling you get of being indispensable to those around you because of your impact in their lives, that affirmation. Maybe your work, your academic accomplishments, your physical or mental well-being? Consider this. Would you be happy if you had one of those things that I just mentioned and had to give up Jesus? Normally, our anxiety and our fears are really helpful in this matter. But as you see, as, as I see, as we see what we're anxious about, we can see our idols more clearly. So, so like shouting in a canyon echoes your words back to you, often as you shout out your worst fears and anxieties, the echoes that come screaming back to you are what you're most likely to worship rather than God. So what might that be for you? What are you most anxious about in life? It can be a really good thing. It can be a praiseworthy thing. It can be a thing worth treasuring. But if it receives more of your worship than God does, you must repent of that. 
The first thing I mentioned was family. The pastor, Kevin DeYoung, has said, one of the acceptable idolatries among evangelical Christians is the idolatry of family. That's true, isn't it? He's not saying that we shouldn't love or value or sacrifice for our families. He's not saying our families shouldn't be our greatest treasures that he's given us. But what he is saying is that when we worship our families more than God, we lay a weight on them they can never bear. We forget that in order to truly love our families, we must love God more than we love them. We are worshipers. And we are sinful worshipers. We elevate other things over God. So what are we to do? Well, much like Israel would later be tempted to worship false gods throughout their history in the Old Testament, the true Israel, Jesus himself, was also tempted to worship false gods, wasn't he? So in Matthew chapter 4, this account is in various of the Gospels, but picking Matthew, Jesus has been led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And we read that one of those temptations, in one of those temptations, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to Jesus, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus was given an opportunity. He could gain exaltation. He could gain dominion if only he refused to worship God alone. If only he worshiped Satan, the, the sort of epitome of all false gods, the root of all idols. So what did Jesus do? He must have been weak by now, having fasted for, in the wilderness, and yet he says to his enemy, Be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. See, Jesus was tempted like we are to idolize the creature more than the creator. But unlike us, he responded by worshiping God alone. By living a perfect life of perfect worship to his father, to the one true God. But instead of receiving praise and acclaim and honor for that obedience, he received God's condemnation. On the cross, Jesus took our idolatry, our self-worship on himself. And in doing so, he took all of God's righteous wrath and punishment on himself. On the cross, he died the death we should have died. And three days later... He rose again, showing that God's justice for our sin had been satisfied in his sacrifice. And so victory over death for all people who would trust in him had been secured. If you're here and you're not a Christian, we're so grateful you're with us. We know it can take some effort to be in a church gathering on a nice Sunday morning. So thank you for being with us. But you should hear that this is how you become right with God. It's not our idea. This is revealed from God in his word. Confess your sin. Trust in what Jesus has done for you and you will be saved. 
you have questions about that, let us know. We'd love to talk to you more about what God has done for us and what he can do for you. And dear church, as redeemed people then with this new life in Christ, we can actually learn to delight in God and follow these first two commandments. But how? I mean, I don't know about you, but the idols of my life are so attractive. How can we wage war against the idolatry of our hearts? I love the words of the hymn we sang earlier. Hast thou seen him? It was a harder melody and harder words, but you made it through. Good job. But as, you, as you sang, I wondered, did you consider the words as you tried to navigate the melody? Well, we have lyric sheets. Maybe they're all used up. If you want more, let me know. But consider these words, maybe even this week. Second verse starts, idols, once they, they won thee, charmed thee, lovely things of time and sense. In the same way, gilded or clothed or presented, does sin disarm thee, honeyed, lest thou turn thee thence. It's, it's old-timey language, but what the hymn writer is saying is that idols aren't ugly. They charm us. They soothe us. They don't hold up signs saying, I look pretty on the outside, but I will kill you. They soothe us. Often our, our idols are, are, are us, and we love us. We love when we are elevated. We love to play God. It makes us feel good. But these idols are sin. Sin disguised in pleasure, tasting like honey, like the hymn says, so we won't turn away. So how? How can we overcome what looks so good, but what will kill us? How can we worship the one true God and not our beautiful idols? The hymn writer has an answer. He, he poses a question. He says, what has stripped the seeming beauty from the idols of the earth. Yeah, yeah, what has stripped it? I want to know how I can see past this facade of beauty from, those, from these things. He says, not a sense of right or duty, but the sight of peerless worth. What makes idols less attractive? Not buckling down and doing better, not relying on your own willpower to fight it, but seeing something more attractive something more beautiful. That's what the hymn writer says in his refrain, captivated by Christ's beauty, worthy tribute haste to bring, crown him now unrivaled king. Church, when it comes to false gods in your life, you'll never be able to turn away from them by believing that your desires are just too strong. You know, as C.S. Lewis once said, your desires are too weak. They're not strong enough. You're content with, with apparent beauty instead of true beauty. So church, look at the one of unrivaled beauty. Be captured and enthralled by his love for you. War against idols, not with mere duty, but with higher beauty. War against idols, not with mere duty, but with higher beauty beauty. Christian, is Jesus beautiful to you? 
Have you considered how the one and only God has given his son for you? Look at him. Meditate on him. See greater beauty. And come, let us adore him. Let's pray. Lord, we confess we are so enthralled by lesser things, temporary things, fleeting things, things of this world that you've given us to point to you. We confess that we love them. But we confess that we want to love you more. We thank you, Jesus, for loving your Father perfectly when we could not. But we pray that in the new life you've given us by your Spirit, you would enable us more and more to turn away from the tempting idols of the world to you. You'd forgive us. You'd help us now as we sing to retune our hearts, to recalibrate our hearts, to refocus our gaze on you alone and your beauty. Hear us now, we pray. Amen.